On this episode of DLN Extend, we discuss what we take for granted the most in Linux. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 93 of DLN Extend. DLN Extend is a community-powered podcast. We take conversations from the DLN community from places like the DLN Discourse Forums, Telegram Group, Discord Server, and more. We also take topics from other shows around the network and give our takes. And with me are the OpenSUSE fanatic that has a totally unhealthy obsession with it and the photographer extraordinaire. Wendy, what's going on, guys? Cold days here in Michigan. I'm doing fine, but it kind of seems like the friendly banter about OpenSUSE that was happening pre-show is just going to continue rolling right on through this episode. I don't know what you're talking about. It was totally <laughs> friendly banter. Oh, but I started recording without letting you guys know I was recording and I caught like a good chunk of it. So I have proof. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, insert argument here. <laughs> Super helpful bunch of nerds out there to help you uh, work your way through problems. OpenSUSE is not the solution to everything, Nate. Read Sorry. after that. I, I totally did. I didn't say it was the solution to everything. He didn't say it was the solution to everything, but he meant it was the solution. Might have suggested it. <laughs> but it's not. In fact, you, I think OpenSUSE ranks um, like out of the box. The way they configure TLP, it's probably the best. Still has a very, very, very unpleasant wireless experience for the installer. I mean, that's only if you don't know anything about wireless. It's like the only thing. It's, that's all you got. I like, the, I like the wireless installer. That's all you got. Your point? It's still kind of important. <laughs> Not really. It is when like 90% of machines are sold with wireless. That's only if you do a net install. You can do a local install and that's not even required. A local install. If you don't use a net, the net installer, if you just use the, uh, the full-blown installer, not an issue. Nate, hold, wait, isn't the whole point of OpenSUSE, especially if you're going to go tumbleweed, to have the most up-to-date stuff? Yeah. So the net install would be kind of important. But it's not required though. And actually I don't do network installs because they take too long because it's pulling all this stuff down. I have a slow connection. So I always do offline installations, but I don't do multiple. Although I did, the last one was a net install, but I wired it in. Anyway, we should probably get to recording because I have to leave at like 1.15, so. Alrighty, I'm going to audacity it because uh, I did have that weird issue just a little bit ago. Oh, hey, look at that. Wendy did get some of the banter about how bad I view OpenSUSE. <laughs> What? Yeah, like the the fact that you hit the giant record button and didn't tell anybody while me and Nate were arguing about OpenSUSE. Your arguments just have no, um, barely standing. Oh yeah, barely, <laughs> barely standing. Yeah, it's not the best wireless experience. It's like the only thing. I rest my case and I leave it at that. It doesn't make the whole thing garbage. That's just your initial. Which is kind of important. <laughs> anyway, on to recording. So Nate, <laughs> what's been going on with you? I'm sure you were aware, but I started a new show sort of on the network. It's new, but it's not. It's basically, it's a rebrand of Big Daddy Linux. The new show is called Linux Saloon. It's a place to discuss tech and open source and where Linux is always on tap. See what I did there? Get it? See what I did there? Taking the show, rebranding it, and bring it to the Destination Linux network so that we can retool the show a little bit to make it less focused around you know, Big Data Linux. I'm not Rocco, so it was just, I think it was kind of weird, I think, for people. People are constantly asking, you know, when's Rocco coming back? And, and well, he's not. So Rocco gave me the keys to the cabin, and I've been running with it now. We had week one, episode one, rather. 
and we had a great turnout. In fact, we had probably twice the turnout than I was expecting. So that's a positive thing. Hopefully it didn't turn everybody off and they won't show up next week. But it was a lot of fun. We had a good discussion about Linux Mint. You know, sometimes I notice that things get a little heated between nerds, you know, about you know different design decisions. I find it amusing and it was fun. Wendy, I think I saw you in the chat. No, I didn't get to jump in the chat for that one. It was State First Lego League, and I was home by the time you guys kicked it off, but after a full day of robotics competition, I was absolutely exhausted. Nerded out? Yeah. Couldn't keep up with chat, for one. I just knew I wouldn't be able to. But I plan to hopefully be there next week. Excellent. The other thing, too, is we did discuss the release of Steam Deck after we're done talking about you know, Linux Mint and also the changes with Humble Bundle as well. It was great to get some other perspectives. It's like an online Linux users group of people. You know, It's open to everybody. And we have some really great conversations. And I always learn something from it, which is actually why I do it. It's every Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern or UTC 101 on Sunday. There's that whole kind of crazy time change thing. So it's best if you just subscribe to Linux Saloon and do that little notification bell thing if you want to be a part of it. So Wendy, you participated in your very first state Lego League competition. Is that correct? This is actually our second competition. So it's called First Lego League. So we did regionals and this was state or champion. Some kids from here are going on to worlds. If one, you can get the funding to go and all of that fun stuff. It's so much fun to go. The teams are an absolute blast and the kids are really focused on building their robot, getting their challenges done, supporting the other teams around them. The boys did great. Their presentation went over fantastic. Now at regionals, they took first place for their innovation project. And once again, at the championships or state, they also took first place for their innovation project. We are so very proud of them. They spent a lot of time working on this, researching, talking to different experts in the fields in which their innovation project came from. And while I do love the robot building part of this, I find that the innovation project is actually one of my favorite parts of this activity in general, where they're trying to find solutions to the problem. And then each year they're giving a different topic for what the solution they're coming up with. So everybody who is at competition has a solution in the same overall topic. And then you're awarded for not only the idea you come up with, but in your team working together to come up with it and your ability to touch base with different experts that are in those fields to make that solution more realizable. So congratulations to the very, very special team that I have gotten to help with this year. We are done with competitions for the year, but I am very proud of the things that they did. And I'm so glad that my son and I got to participate. It's a fantastic program. And if your kids are looking for something nerdy and engineering to do, I highly recommend checking it out. I am curious. So they go to this legally competition, do they bring any already built robots with them or are they going into this building from scratch at the competition? You come with your robot built. So during your preparation time before the first competition, you are putting together your robot, you're creating any attachments that you need, and you're working that robot through the different challenges that you're given. So there's this really cool game board. This year it was all based around transportation and you're supposed to do 
certain tasks with your robot and each task gets you so many different points. And they're really not only looking for a robot that can do it all, but one that's kind of compact and small. So you get bonus points if it fits within this certain inspection bonus area. So if it's nice and tight and small, then you get extra points because not only can your robot accomplish all of these tasks, it's able to do so without taking up a whole lot of space. The competition itself takes place in just two minutes and 30 seconds. So you end up having a practice round and then three official rounds. Your score is taken from the best score that you get over the course of those other three rounds. And this is really, really important because they are not working with robots that are particularly very consistent, which is part of the problem that we ran across with this. It's geared a little funny, and depending on where it stops in that rotation of the gears, sometimes it won't go quite as far next time. They aren't cheap robot kits by any means, but at the same time, there is little quirks and stuff that are involved with these robots. And so to give kids the benefit of the doubts because of those things and to make changes between runs, your top score is the one that counts in the end. Matt, it really wasn't that long ago when you told us your goal for the year is just to enjoy what you have. You don't need any tech, but you've already broken that one? Yes and no. So uh, (laughs) I have a lot of tablets that I use, don't use. There's a lot of stuff that sits that like, oh. I have phones that I haven't touched in months kind of deal. Tablets are kind of the same way for me, but I view tablets in much more of a, not a productivity tool. I know, um, you know, a lot of schools and a lot of other things, Android tablets specifically, or iPads and whatnot are viewed in a weird kind of way when it comes to schools. It was like, oh, use the iPad or, you know, whatever. It's kind of like when certain times in the enterprise when you hear people using like tablets and stuff. Not so much for me. Like they're not a productivity tool. Their uh, media consumption device. I have plenty of media consumption devices. I need to get rid of some. So that's what I did. Instead of having an HP touchpad, a Blackberry playbook, two Kindle Fires, and that kind of stuff, all those went away. And I ended up getting a uh, iPad Pro 10.5. So I did get rid of stuff. <laughs> In fairness, but I did get new stuff. And some of that was how I view tablets more than anything else. I had the newer 2020 version of the Kindle Fire or HD or whatever the heck their naming convention currently is. But I also had like a Kindle Fire like 8.9 HDX. I had a, the BlackBerry Playbook. I had the, you know, I've had a bunch of tablets that just don't do anything. I went with an iPad specifically because it's a consumption device. Apple has a better tracker and people aren't going to like to hear this. When it comes to support, official support, Apple does a better job in the long term than say basically every Android manufacturer, even Google. I mean, they're still running the newest version of iOS on the iPad Air 2, like the original iPad Air 2. That's kind of how I viewed it. And all the stuff still works. I got rid of a bunch. 
I got something new, but I got rid of a bunch, so the clutter's kind of less. That's just kind of where I'm sitting with it. Well, I'm not surprised that you already broke your resolution, because your resolution was pretty specific about not buying anything new. So I'm not really surprised, you know, coming from you, Matt, that you had already... And fairness, this is also a refurb, <laughs> so technically it's not new. It's new to me, so I'll give you that. Uh, you know, whatever, however you want to help yourself. At least you did get rid of some stuff, and you replaced those devices with this one device. But I have to go with Nate, that when you were saying, I'm not going to buy any hardware this year, I was like, mm, I don't know. I guess it just goes to show you that Matt's not really good on his word. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he is excellent on his word when it comes to individual game recommendations. But when it comes to buying games and playing with hardware, that's kind of a hard one for Matt to not do. Wait, wait, wait. Which is ironic given that we also have a co-host from a show called Hardware Addicts as a co-host here. I never said that I wasn't buying hardware, so I don't want to hear that crap. I I said I was going to enjoy my hardware. (laughs) Difference. Not anything new. Difference. Nope. I'm going to do something a little different this year. I'm not making any resolutions as far as video games or anything else because we all know how well that worked last year. Uh, For six months, it did anyway. Six is pushing it. Oh, shush. (laughs) As I look around and see what I have for technology... There's really not anything I need because I try to make the distinction between what I want and what I need. While there's a lot of tech I want, I just want to be content with what I need slash have. So that means no new laptops. That means no new desktops. That means no new, I mean, I'm not going to try a new desktop because, uh, you know, GPUs are not a thing right now. Barring something blow, you know, like a monitor blowing up or something. Like there's very few things where I'm going to like, oh, I got to go buy this. And I think I'm okay with that. Fairly achievable goal. Caveat this. I am still getting the Steam Deck. That is the one thing that I will be buying. Anyway, anyway. Anyway, what? You just lost. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have kept the playbook before I'd have bought any Apple device, but that's just me. But it's funny you should say that about them being just consumption devices. I just dropped off a vehicle to the dealership for service because it had like some recalls or whatever. And they plugged this little dongle thing into like the vehicle's port. I don't remember what we call it, that port's called. ODB2 sensor port. The one that's under the steering wheel usually. Yeah. Yeah, that one. They plug that in, do something on their iPad and it communicates and like pulls basically all the current information out and everything else. I kind of understand at that point why they use Apple. They've basically been using the same form factor for quite a while. So things like cases and and docs and everything else are going to just continue to be useful. Well, nobody on the Android side of doing tablets, they had no consistency. So why would you choose an Android device when there is no consistency between them? So I can kind of see it. Yes, it is a consumption device, but it's also, I think it makes for a good coordination device. So they're not actually creating anything there necessarily, but they are pulling the data together to make a report so that the mechanics and engineers, whatever that actually do the work, mechanics can go through and see these are the things, the uh, the recalls that have to be addressed and so forth. So I think it's pretty cool that they have that. And I think it's a very useful device for doing that. But as far as like actually doing the work, you know, writing the reports in, not really good for that, just, you know, selecting, selecting and, and, and so forth. But anyway, I will concede and say, I do see the value in a tablet style device 
when you have a manufacturer that can actually provide some sort of consistency from model to model. I guess, bravo, Apple. For me, it's the consistency and the support, the official support. I'm not a root and ROM guy, so it's not my, like, I know how to, but it's just not my thing. I'm not always going to want to hunt on, you know, XDA for the latest builds and all the other stuff that are currently available and make sure it's available for my specific mod. Like, Wendy, you went through this with one of your tablets not that long ago where you're like, oh, I need to make sure they have this very specific ROM for this very specific tablet. Like, that's just not my thing. Well, that's with any device if you're rooting and ROMing. And in that case, if you're wanting to root and ROM, it would be best to look before you purchase to make sure that there are plenty available out there for that device. And in particular, it was phones that I was looking at, which unfortunately I haven't had time to actually get my phone root and ROMed, but that's a whole nother story. But yeah, that can be kind of a pain in the butt. And especially if you've bought a device and there's a whole lot of activity going for it. And in I've had certain cases where like a month or two months after I buy it, then all of the development activity completely drops off. And I'm like, well, that's great. So I definitely understand not wanting to go through some of the hassle or the frustration of trying to root and ROM, just wanting that consistency with the device Mm -hmm. and being able to do all kinds of work on it. For Matt, it is just a consumption device for a lot of people I know, they use them for other things. My husband uses an iPad at work. He calls it his babysitter. That's where he puts in all of his time <laughs> cards. You know, what he's back and forth doing. You know, all of that information gets entered into the iPad. But they don't use their iPads for diagnostics. I know this is way off topic, but it just kind of made me think of it. They actually use laptops for all of their diagnostic tools. I'm wondering, though, because the company has said that they're going to be doing some upgrades in their hardware and some of the software they're using, if in this case, maybe they will be using iPads all together. I know my husband absolutely hates his. He hates the little iPad mini we have at house. We've had it for at least three or four years. I really don't like using the darn thing myself. And he really doesn't like using his bigger one that he has to use for work. So if they are doing all of their diagnostic tools on an Apple here, Magneto, uh, we'll see what happens. Well, he does break (laughs) everything he touches, right? So maybe it won't last there. Apparently the aluminum body around those iPads is still protecting it somehow because he still hasn't broken it. So while I'm changing out hardware, even though I said I wouldn't, being constantly ragged on by my co-host here, we also want to talk and mention about some changes that are coming to the show. We currently have a logo contest for the new show name, which is Lennox Out Loud. I believe the contest ends on the 31st, Wendy, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, absolutely. Originally, we had the deadline further back. But we've had some really, really great submissions and understanding that that was really a time crunch for some people between when it was announced and when that deadline was, we're extending it to January 31st. So you have a little bit more time to get that submission in if you haven't already. I love seeing the stuff you guys are doing. Very cool. Same here. I'm really looking forward to when we're able to actually, you know, unveil a logo and stuff. So if you want to participate in that contest, that'll be in the show notes and in probably the description of the video. And you will be able to win a $100 gift card as well if your logo is chosen. So get those entries in. 
This episode of Dale on Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now's the perfect time to dive into DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever using a simple, intuitive interface. Simply point app platform to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let it do all the heavy lifting. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and containers. By running App Platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly lower than any other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup, too. As a DLN Extend listener and member of the DLN community, you can get started building your world-changing app on their app platform for free, and it gets better. DigitalOcean will give you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your free $100 credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. So one thing in Linux that we tend to not always look at is the stuff that we take for granted, the stuff that's become easy. For those of us that, you know, come back from a time of Wintel modems and Linux, Linux has become really, really, really easy in that time frame. We wanted to take and look at what we take for granted in Linux. There's a lot of stuff we can take for granted nowadays, isn't there, Nate? I would say there are tons of things that I take for granted, and I don't necessarily realize what I have taken for granted until I use another operating system. It can actually be any operating system to include the vintage operating systems that I enjoy. Just for starters, the number one thing that I take for granted in Linux is printer support. I realize not everybody uses a printer. Not everyone has a need for a printer, but I have a regular need for a printer. We've talked about this before. In fact, I purchased a laser printer upon the suggestion of Mario Gaspari, one of our listeners and members of the DLN community. And I use it all the time. I never have any issues with it. It prints, it scans, it does everything that I need. I didn't have to like, you know, fiddle about to get additional computers to utilize it. Literally, it's just pointed at the printer. The magic comes spilling out of that white box, essentially in the corner of the home education room. I really think that I've taken for granted printers, especially when someone with a Windows machine came by and said, can I print something? And I said, sure, you can print to it. It was a headache for quite a while just getting that printer set up. I'm like, you know, they have the driver support package. You install it. Everything should just work, I would think. But it wasn't that easy. It took quite a lot of extra time. And it could be granted that I'm not as familiar with Windows. But it was like, wow, I really have taken for granted how easy this is to do in Linux. So thank you to all those people who are involved, all those developers in making printing so stinking easy in Linux. The very wide variety of printer drivers that are out there and available for Linux is really cool. When I first started using it, I didn't understand because I wasn't there in the early days how crazy and difficult it was to get printers to work sometimes. Now, I think printers are a pain regardless of which operating system you use. In and of themselves, printers are a headache. But the last one I had before the HP I'm currently using was an Epson branded printer, and it had official yet unofficial drivers from Epson. So they put them out there, but there really wasn't any support with them. And when I was looking for a new printer and was looking at the HP that I was talking to now, when I was in the store looking at them, talking to one of the people that worked at the computer store, I had mentioned, you know, it was going to be used on Linux and da 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 da. And he's like, well, I know these ones, HPs, 
especially when it comes to Ubuntu. In most cases, you don't have to do anything. It's just automatically found on the network. And I'm like, yeah, HPs are great, but you can also get drivers from Epson. I take that back. The first time I was getting my mom on Linux, I worked for a very, very long time to get her printer to work. But A, that was an older printer, and then B, it was a renamed printer. And so I had to do some extra digging to find out who was the main manufacturer of that printer. So that part was difficult, but oh my goodness, that's been like five years ago, six years ago anymore. Like I haven't thought about how hard it was to get a printer installed in forever. Yeah, I'd say we're definitely spoiled in the printer department in Linux. One of the things that I've absolutely loved about Linux, especially as I have had my share in strange hardware or specialized hardware is kernels that are made for specific devices. Now on general things, you really don't need that. I don't need a special kernel for my desktop, but when it comes to running the surface devices that we use in the house, it is great to see people working on these specialized kernels. It makes the touchscreen functionality work absolutely great, but it's more than that. There's all these other additional devices and hardware that you can get for Surface devices to make use easier, better, more functionality. And inside the specialized kernel for these devices, it adds supports for these extra add-ons that you can have for it. I didn't think before that I would ever fall in love with a Surface device, but I absolutely have. And this is another very special thank you to all the developers that are working on these things. When I bought it, I kind of took for granted that Linux would work on it. And Matt's like, hey, yeah, here's somebody that's already working on this project. Here's a kernel for it. I have the kernel installed on the system. I have the repo added so that when I do a normal update, any of the updates that are for that come down at the same time. And it just runs smoothly and flawlessly once again. Linux making whatever hardware I want to use work. I totally agree with everything you said and just making things work and then how the emphasis people put into ensuring that they work like with the kernel modules or whatever for the Surface Pro or Surface Tablet or Surface thing, your Microsoft Surface uh, hardware. It's really neat how maybe an odd piece of hardware out there, an esoteric piece perhaps, that somebody else has that and that somebody else happens to be a Linux user and that happens to have the technical skills and know-how to figure it out to patch the problem or create a patch for the problem and then share it with a greater Linux community. It's something else I take for granted. The other nice thing about that too is the length of time that a piece of hardware is supported is a lot longer in the Linux world than it is in Windows. I know that for a friend of mine, he has a business where he uses this piece of hardware for printing graphics of some kind. I don't know exactly what it does, but it cuts vinyl graphics out. There isn't a modern, like there isn't a driver for the latest version of Windows. He's stuck in old version. A little digging, I found out that actually there is something, I guess, in Linux that does support that, but he doesn't want to use Linux. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting for him to say, hey, can you get this working on Linux? Then I'll hop on that. But it's really neat to see how things are preserved, hardware is preserved, and drivers are preserved in Linux. And many times you don't even have to do any additional work They're just sitting there waiting for you to need them. And then you can just use it. Yeah, absolutely. That part's awesome. And we got to see a little bit of that behind the scenes with the education laptops that we've talked about on multiple episodes and that you've seen us mention or talk about on the after show for Destination Linux. There are some particular parts of these laptops. They are a little stranger hardware They do have additional inputs and functions that your standard laptop doesn't have. But 
We've seen the community work on these. We've already seen changes roll upstream to make them work better. And I don't want to take these awesome people in the community to then make it work for granted. It's not my work that's going into making all of this strange hardware work. I am very thankful for it. That might sound a little rubber ducky. (laughs) (laughs) Rubber ducky, you're the one. I definitely agree with you, Wendy. Ironically, I was the one that introduced you to the, uh, making the suggestions of the surface line of stuff to be like, hey, this works really well in Linux. Lo and behold, little did I know you would jump full bore deep end into that. I am very thankful. And I think it's something we very much take for granted that somebody can have these interesting and esoteric pieces of hardware and make that stuff available to the community like they do with the specifically, in this case, the surface-based kernels and stuff. I think that is a tremendous asset. Another one is the gaming focused kernels, I guess, the ones that are more concerned about peak performance based on the use case of what you're looking for. So you have like the Zen kernel, which is more optimized around gaming and that kind of stuff, like trying to kill as much of the background stuff as possible and streamline and, you know, performance, performance, performance. That's its thing. Whereas something like the real time kernels, which are more about reducing audio latency and all that kind of stuff between what you say and what actually the computer picks up that kind of stuff is stuff i think we often take for granted and it's nice to see that we're able to have that so readily available and yeah like nate said there's going to be esoteric pieces of hardware that don't work or companies that don't even support linux that after a while sometimes a community maintained driver will fall off you know you have companies like razor who do a horrible job at supporting linux as a company as an example with their laptops and stuff so you know then there's people who pick up what they don't do with like open razor and open rgb to make all that stuff work i think the community and the chutzpah as nate would probably like to say of the community to get stuff working if companies don't want to is really really something we take for granted far too often you know when you say open rgb i just remembered how much fun that is it's just a fun thing to play with it's not something i talk about but (laughs) it's just a lot of fun every once in a while nate wants to go ahead and play with all the rainbow vomit Thanks to OpenRGB or Piper. I really like Piper for controlling the rainbow vomit on my mouse. Awesome, awesome stuff. And the best part about all of that, you don't need to dig up a license key to use them. You also don't have to use crappy manufacturer software because they only know how to make hardware, not software. I'm looking at you, Samsung, (laughs) and your Android experience or lack thereof. Beautiful hardware, pain in the butt software. If there's one company that can talk about redundancy... It's them. Oh, you want a messaging app? Here's three. Oh, you want a digital assistant? Here's Bixby, the thing nobody asks for. Anyway, so some of the other things that we often don't look at, though, is specifically how helpful the entire community is, though. You know, we talked about not just where the community will develop things that companies won't, just the overall community as a whole. Now, there are outliers. There are the most vocal tend to be the loudest, unfortunately, and those are the ones that, well, get the most traction as far as the people. Well, this is my experience. If you dig deep enough, the mentality has changed over the last probably 10 years or so. There is a great group of people that are willing to help and help you solve problems. Nate, (laughs) OpenSUSE is not the solution to everything. You're right. There's probably one or two solutions that are not answered with OpenSUSE, but I just haven't found those yet. Well played. (laughs) (laughs) I like Color Cycle. I know I should just leave everything green, but like just like a slow... 
color cycle on the motherboard lights, whatever. The way it glows underneath the Commodore 64 imposter here. I just really, really like it. You really do like that rainbow vomit, don't you? I'm ashamed to say yes. I do. Man, like, I don't know what happened to me. <laughs> I love a backlit keyboard, don't get me wrong. And being able to change the colors, I think it's totally fine. But mine don't change. Of course, the one in the kitchen is different. That one, you can change the pattern of how the lights work, but it is rainbow all the way down, and they can either be constantly on or flashing, whatever. I just have them set so they're always on. So that is more of a rainbow look. On the keyboard, I can control. They're this light bluish purple you hit a key it turns white and then will slowly fade back to that bluish purple i really do keep my rainbow vomit to a minimum but if you love it all the power to you that's there rocket rainbow vomit is the best rainbow vomit rocket there are some headers on the board for like additional rainbow vomit and i was thinking i could probably like i know it's stupid because it's a you know it's a commodore 64 imposter computer it looks like you know the see, a mini itx computer but the vents that are above the keyboard i think it'd be very cool if they had like a subtle glow to those as well i just think that'd be kind of cool that's not the magical blue smoke right i haven't let that out yet it still has all of its magical blue smoke that's good that's good. <laughs> <laughs> good job. Well done. Bless your heart. Along the same lines of something we talked about earlier, it keeps older hardware going. In part of that way, it's got really low system overhead. So instead of having all of your RAM being eaten up by just the basics of your system, it allows you so much flexibility and you can have a massive amount of RAM in your computer and use it as just bragging rights or use it for the work you're doing, but it's not necessarily required for the average user to get on their computer, do some browsing, that kind of thing. Whereas on other systems, that's kind of a necessity and we forget about the fact that it's just so clean and simple at startup. Yeah, and on top of that, not only is the system overhead much lower, but also you don't have to punch in any registration keys to get that older system operational again. It's such a beautiful thing to have that whole process be streamlined. We didn't have to think about something. I remember the days back when you needed to do a fresh install of Windows or wipe it and you'd be presented with that, what is your registration? And you'd have to go dig for the box in order to find what the key is and then hope you typed it in right that time, double check it three or four times, hit enter. Nope, I still messed it up and redo that process all over again. It is nice to know because I have loaded systems in a time crunch. Like when I built this system, I got it done just in time to record an episode of Hardware Addicts. And I didn't have to worry about digging for that registration key. It was just load the system, put the bare minimum on what I needed to do in order to get the show up and running. And that was it. It's amazing the time savings. Along that same line, there are people that complain <clears throat> Matt, about the way some operating systems will install <clears throat> OpenSUSE. But for the most part, when it comes to the installation of a Linux system, it's really so straightforward and clean. You don't have to sit there for hours as it's telling you, I'm getting ready. You're to the desktop environment extraordinarily quickly in most cases. Well, Matt's also kind of an edge case. He's not really good at computers, so got to give him a buy. We'll let that one pass. Okay, Matt, you're fine. It's okay. Nate, so many words for you, none of them appropriate. The other thing that I really take for granted in being in the Linux world is how helpful your fellow nerds are out there to get a problem fixed. 
and this is actually really any community that I've been in for the most part, if I have a problem with a system, if I can't get a piece of hardware to work just right, or I'm trying to understand how a one piece talks to another piece and maybe smooth out some issues. But just because the hardware works doesn't mean that necessarily all the issues are worked out. The point of that is I can go on to like the Destination Linux forum. I can go on to the OpenSUSE forum or on the MX Linux forums, get the Linux Mint forums out there, you know, the Ubuntu forums. You can literally get just about any problem answered or people will work with you sometimes even like stay up late seemingly to help you work through a problem. I love that about the Linux community because you know, people say, oh, it's toxic or whatever. And I'm sure there, I know there are toxic elements as in any community, but I've never known a community or communities more helpful than the various Linux communities out there. It's probably the part that gets me most excited about using Linux is just because you have a almost unlimited resource of helpful people out there that help to inspire that help you to grow, that help you to be more than just a user, but you know, really own your technology. And I just absolutely love that. You just can't ask for a better technology experience when you can get the kind of help you can get. You know, as long as you have a little bit of patience, you can articulate your problem or show your problem. The people are out there to help you. One, they'll get the right information from you because they are so good. And then they'll show you how to fix the problem. And I just think it's just absolutely fantastic. Once somebody understands how awesome the community is, there's really no going back. Yeah, that's even said for learning something new. I know you and I have talked about wanting to know and understand more in networking is that necessarily Linux directly related? No, but this tech community has been very, very willing to be like, hey, this is what I do for a living. I am more than happy to answer any questions, to help explain things in a less jargon-ridden way to help you get and reach the goal in understanding networking as much as you want to. So if you reach the point where you're done and you're like, ah, oh, that's enough, I'm good, they're more than willing to be like, okay, that's great. Glad you got the information. Just so open with the information, regardless whether it's Linux distro specific or somewhere else on the scope of technology in general. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the passive manager we use and trust. It's the easiest, safest way for individuals, teams, businesses, and organizations to store their passwords and other vital sensitive information. Bitwarden lets you choose the authentication to access your password manager, such as PIN, master password, and adding phrases or fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. Bitwarden is a password manager that I use and trust because Bitwarden is 100% open source. It has extensive security audits. It gives you the ability to self-host if you so choose. So go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. It's only $10 for a premium account, which gives you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, and more. Make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. If you're like me, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the Premium Edition, especially since the Premium Edition starts at only $10 annually. Bitwarden has saved me from getting into a serious jam numerous times. Now, you wouldn't be able to pry it from my cold, dead device. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. So while we're talking about how awesome the things that we underappreciate are, let's talk about some other stuff. Nate, you actually have a video game review. I do. Did things freeze over? Like what happened here? It's an old game. That's what happened. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. It's an old game. It's from 1985. It's a game called Racing Destruction Set. And this is back when Electronic Arts used to make good games. Maybe they still do. I don't know. I think before that, there was this pinball construction set that it was like the first game that I'm aware of that it gave you like a whole construction set. You could build your own like pinball playfields. Well, this is Racing Destruction Set, which is a little bit of a play on words of the construction set of the pinball thing. It's a racing game that you can build your own tracks and modify your own vehicles. You have 10 vehicles to choose from, and then you can basically build any kind of track you want with the kind of jumps you want. You can't make a track that's like impossible, like it won't let you like have mismatched levels between parts. It'll check that, but you can make like an impossible to complete track. I went online to see if I could see any reviews of the game out there, and there wasn't. There's like maybe two of them, but they weren't really that good. Probably because nobody plays this game anymore, and I acknowledge that. It's a game that I enjoyed. But to back up a little bit, a few weeks ago, about a month ago actually, I was trying to get the game for the C64 Maxi, that re-implementation of the Commodore 64 using modern hardware and that has USB ports and um, HDMI. It's actually technically an emulator, but the hardware's got like a working keyboard and you can like plug PlayStation controllers into it and they'll work. So my kids like that. The images that I had, and I looked for images, I couldn't find anything that would actually work on there. Like two five and a quarter floppies is what it was. I could play it on my original hardware, no problem. But I want to play it like in the living room, in the house, with the kids. The big TV, which doesn't have, you know, RCA jack inputs. And so I couldn't find a solution. There was actually a YouTuber out there. The guy's name's Robin from 8-Bit Show and Tell. He actually directed me to some images that I could run on the Maxi, on the C64. And it was great. Instead of having to wait a long time for the floppy to load, like on the original hardware, it was almost instantaneous, which is great, which is why I like the emulation. And so I did a review on it, like after playing with my kids. They actually had a lot of fun doing it. They made a lot of tracks. In fact, it was kind of a rediscovery of the game because, you know, I played it a certain way as a child, and they decided to look at the game from a whole different way and built tracks accordingly, and it was really a lot of fun for me. I did a review on the gameplay of it, the vehicle customization, the track customization, some unanswered questions I still have to this day on it, what it's like playing it today in 2022, kind of like what I wish the game had after playing it. So I did a video on it of doing a review just for fun, just kind of because I've not done such a thing before. It was just fun. I just got myself into a wet paper bag and couldn't get out of it. Uh, that's why I did it. Everybody needs to do that once in a while. Get stuck in a wet paper bag? Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> It's really cool seeing you keeping these older games alive. I know we've talked about it at length with wanting to make sure we're preserving some of these older games, some of this older hardware. We talked about that a lot when I was discussing my experience with DOSBox. Thanks for the review on the game. I don't have a Commodore 64. I don't have a Commodore 64 emulator installed. But this is one of those games that I guarantee both of my boys would absolutely love it. I mean, it has shown its age a little bit. If my 10-year-old would like it, and he actually thinks the graphics are good on it. I mean, I don't know why we just went from going like from Little Big Planet to that. I don't know how he could think that. Maybe he's got a little cognitive dissonance. I don't know. Yeah, he enjoyed it. He thought the graphics were good. And I think they are in an 8-bit sort of way. I don't want to hear my kids complain at all about any graphics because I see some of the other games they play that are quote unquote modern. So pixelated graphics are just fine. Like Minecraft? Exactly. Yeah. And others. So Wendy, this week you didn't do anything with games, I see. You did something with some productivity software. So something about MailFence? Yes, I've talked about this privacy-focused mail service before. And here recently, I got the newsletter from them, kind of all the things that happened over the last year. And there was something that happened, it was actually pretty early last year that I had no idea about. And I, there's quite a few people in our community that use Thunderbird. And MailFence has actually partnered with Thunderbird. So you can create an account directly from Thunderbird. You don't have to go to the MailFence website. They're integrated cleanly, set up your account from there, and you're 
a way to go. I thought that partnership between the two was really, really neat. And I love to see open source projects and privacy focused projects really working together to make the user experience not only as good as it can be, but make it easier for the everyday person to have privacy focused email services. To your point, Wendy, I totally agree that having these email services available is very, very helpful, especially if you want your privacy and that kind of stuff. Thunderbird, I like Thunderbird. I really do. But man, that UI, that UI, (laughs) at least on the desktop anyway, that needs some help. But uh, MailFence is definitely one I've been interested in to try. And I know you've been singing his praises for quite a while. Definitely be one I'll be looking into. I'm currently a Proton Mail guy, but you know I'm always looking for alternatives. And the term burner emails, but you know what I mean. Definitely be one I'm looking into, though. The fact that they're partnering, like Thunderbird is partnering with MailFence, I think is a great thing because, you know, having that encrypted email in a client, at least for one client, is a start, a great start. And that means that, you know, a lot of that stuff will probably carry over to other mail clients, open source mail clients as well, because, you know, that's just how the open source community works. So it's very cool to see that, you know, MailFence, which offers not just email, but calendar documents and contacts, that that's being integrated into Thunderbird. I'm excited to see where that goes. Yeah, as they put it, Thunderbird and MailFence had a lot of the same values in mind, and they wanted to give users an option to help compete with some of those big tech offerings. So where they are joined together, you do have your mail, your calendar, your contacts all in one. I believe Thunderbird is not only across all Linux, but do they have a mobile app as well? I'm not sure. Not that I'm aware of. But maybe that's something for them to think about. Thunderbird's kind of been, and this is on Mozilla, uh, they can't figure out what to do with it. Well, Thunderbird is no longer directly part of Mozilla. It's a completely separate entity now. True. But there has been some fluctuations in where the project's going and how it's going to be updated to look a little bit more modern and not so late 1990s-ish. I think they're working on that, though. I read quite some time ago that that is a work in progress. I don't know where it is today. I don't use Thunderbird, but I do understand that as being something that is getting worked on. Hope so. I would love to see continued partnerships along this lines with other privacy-focused projects and the great options that we have in the open source community. Totally agree. I think with this, uh, ProtonMail will have a kick in the pants as far as I'm not ragging on ProtonMail and the guys that do all the Proton VPN stuff. They do a lot of good for the open source community, but their integration with other projects is not the best as far as you have to use, if you're on Linux, you have to use things like the Proton Bridge, which is kind of annoying. And there's ways that they could partner with email clients and stuff like what Thunderbird has done with MailFence. So I'm really glad to see that this is happening though. It's so much easier for more people to be on privacy-focused solutions if you make it easier for them to use it, plain and simple. We'd like to think that everybody will go out and do the work and get their privacy-focused email, calendar, whatever, but in all reality, people are busy. They have so much going on. It's part of the reason why I use Manjaro and not Arch from Scratch. I want to have my, I can't really say cake because I don't eat cake. Want to have your celery and peanut butter too? Uh, I don't do celery either or peanut oh. butter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Batons are here. Yeah, I want to have my super awesome dessert and eat it too. 
There we go. And this is one of those cases where it's being done. My everyday use case has been sandwiched between two game recommendations. Which one do you have for us this week, Matt? I have a 3D interactive point and click adventure game that, that is older, the series anyway. Nate, this is still the 2000, like late 99s, 2000. So it's still too new for you. <laughs> The game series is called Siberia. This is Siberia 3 that came out back in, I want to say 2015, 16, around there. Again, it's a 3D point-and-click adventure game, so very story-focused. It's kind of like mythological, and but it's not. You play the character Kate Walker, who's like an investigative journalist, reporter, whatever term you want to use. You are trying to follow a mystery. And I really don't want to give more away than that because that's kind of the whole point of most point and click adventure games is the story. The puzzles can be a little hard, not going to lie, but the game runs fantastic. It's usually $39.99, but I've seen it as low as like $2 to get. So if you can find it on sale at like Fanatical or even, I'm not going to recommend Humble Bundle at the moment, given where they're going with stuff, at least with the Trove anyway. I'm going to recommend Fanatical <laughs> over Humble Bundle just because at least they still support Linux gaming stuff. I don't want to say simple art style, but a more simplistic art style as far as like the way the 3D graphics are done and that kind of stuff. And it's just a nice looking atmospheric adventure game that we don't get a lot of anymore. So that's why I'm kind of recommending it. And yes, it works on Linux. It's a gold on Proton. Literally for me, it was download the 30 gigs of stuff and click play and it just worked. I mean, it looks like a neat game. A little bit creepy there in the uh, intro trailer. That's what the uh, whole adventure game thing is. Whole genre. Yes. 2017 release date. That's not that old at all for Siberia 3. I was talking the first two. Oh, the first two. Okay. So it's a continuation of that. Yes. And I see it's on Steam right now. You can buy it. Siberia 3 for $30 or the deluxe edition, which I'm not sure what that comes with, for $40. The $40 edition, I believe, is like digital art book soundtrack and probably the DLC. There's a like small side adventure DLC that they made. Oh. But either way, like I said, you can find the deluxe edition usually on sale during like all the holiday sales and stuff, even on Steam. So again, definitely worth getting though, if you're an adventure game fan, even for someone like you, Nate. Oh, you're special. It says adventure game and puzzle. So is it a game that is more story and puzzle focused? Are you having to solve different situations in order to move on to the next part or? Yeah, it's very environmental puzzles. They're usually the name of the game for games like these. So it's like, you know, find this particular thing to use in this particular situation for this particular, you know, I don't know, find a wedge to hold the door open kind of stuff. So that's kind of what it is, but there's also like conversational pieces and whatnot to kind of advance the game as well. It's kind of like a multifaceted game in that regard but the puzzles can be challenging so if you're not a big puzzle person this might not be the game for you it's like a brand new tire or using a brand new version <laughs> of open susa that's like a brand new car smell expensive perpetually smells like a new car smell uh no delightful We'd like to continue the discussion with you on Telegram and Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the DLN website for more information on how to connect to the social channels and all our shows and creators at destinationlinux.network. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media platforms, see the links at the bottom of the show description or drop us a message on the contact form by visiting dlnextend.com backslash contact. Be sure to check out the DLN merch store and grab yourself some DLN Extend swag along with other 
other swag for other shows across the network. As always, we thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week for another awesome episode of Dion Extend. Until then, have a great week, everybody. Thank you.